okay and we are live uh slightly out of character uh on a tuesday lunchtime uh to secure our guest um for this afternoon uh if it's your first time tuning in if it's your first time downloading one of these podcasts on spotify or apple podcast welcome to episode 77 of aid thompson and other disappointments um of which there are many disappointments at the moment in this disconcerting politically undisciplined and frankly dystopian time that we're living in a special welcome to the patreons of the potty Raphael, uh kerry dodd and paul mason you rock my goddamn world um and a reminder to other listeners and viewers of all that all content goes out on the patreon first so please do make sure that you jump over to patreon.com slash aid for thirsty frothing instant gratification access uh, my guest this week, my guest now, this afternoon, is a political commentator. You may have seen her on Channel 5's The Jeremy Vine Show. She's also an established marketing lead for a US tech firm. Uh, or you may have seen her on Twitter, where she commands a frankly eye-watering army of 179,000 followers and counting, each one rapidly hitting refresh to catch her latest uh, in her daily, if not hourly, tweets lampooning the Tory government's corruption, lies and incompetence. You may know her as Marina Perkis, but to me, she will always be uh, Marina Perkis, uh, realistically. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Marina. Woo! Thank you. That was quite the intro, Aid. I think that's the best intro I've ever had. Thank wow. you. Wow. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I'm quite new at this, so um, any any adulation or uh, appraisal is is very welcome. Um, <laughs> thanks very much for for taking the time to to chat with me this afternoon. I'm sure you're super busy. Um, you like me actually have kind of a day job that <laughs> takes you away. Yeah. Believe it or not, I don't get paid to tweet. Who'd, who'd believe it? I, um, I actually have a main job, which pays the bills, which is completely unrelated to politics, which is, yeah, marketing. And I um, look after marketing campaigns for a really good US tech firm. Um, but I'm not going to name them just to just in case to drag them into all this. But yeah, that is my full time gig. I see. So if like we, we both work in tech, but we mm -hmm. both kind of, you know, rapidly tweet and lampoon the government and like you once upon a time people just had day jobs and politics was just something that they kind of looked at the front page of the papers and mm -hmm. then that was it and maybe they would talk about it with their mate down the pub it didn't become this sort of obsession the way that it is for you me super tansky davy moo a, a lot of people who spend a lot of time on twitter consuming news and and constructing reactions and and trying to expose uh corruption and uh and incompetence um what was it that that got you into politics? What was it that sort of dragged you into it and made you think, oh no, fuck this? It was Brexit. And um, and I say that like, at the time I didn't even know quite why it was Brexit. I, I remember getting the card through the door asking, you know, which box to tick regarding exiting or, you know, staying in. And for me, it just was like, no brainer in brainer. I didn't actually know, really know why. Right. I didn't have, um, I wasn't into politics understand the Brexit, I clearly wasn't targeted by all of those really dodgy Facebook ads that went out there promising the earth if we Brexit. Um, but it felt like the wrong to do, like, why would we leave? Plus, I've, I'm of Italian heritage. My mum and dad are Sicilian, born and bred. Right. You spoke to, if you spoke to them now, they sound like they arrived yesterday. Really? Um, <laughs> but they're actually, they've been here since the 70s. So it just felt like the right thing to do to keep that sort of channel of people coming in and setting up lives and also coming out and doing the same across the, the continent. Um, 
it felt like the right thing to do. But I had no other basis. I had no other reason for thinking like that. So I remember the morning of the referendum results, and my husband said, we voted out. Mm. Um, And it just really hit me. And I couldn't quite believe it. And then since then, it's basically been a case of find out, like, why do people do that? Understanding that the pure lies that were pumped out at a grand scale that made people vote that way, the fact that there's absolutely no recourse, no repercussions or punishment, nothing for those people that did that. In fact, they ended up in power. Mm. And in the absolute, dare I say, shit show. By the way, sorry, what language is allowed on this podcast? Oh, I don't you know. can say fuck shit, balls. Oh, yeah. wonderful. Good to know. <laughs> You're well, not on <laughs> Channel 5 now, Marina. <laughs> the shit, I really have to temper my language on Jeremy Vine. Um, so the absolute shit show that has followed, because we have ended up with a government of people who sold us the Brexit lies, um, and who are only in position now because of their allegiance and loyalty to Brexit and to Boris Johnson. And this is why we're seeing the worst chapter in our political history. And as for being consumed by it, I'm no more consumed by politics than, say, the average bloke or woman, whoever is, with their favourite TV series or their favourite football team or whatever. You know, I'd probably dedicate the same amount of time to it, maybe a little bit more than your favourite TV series, my goodness, it is so compelling. I am captivated. It's so, so entertaining. It's better than any reality TV show because <laughs> it impacts you and me and everyone else and our kids and our kids. Anyway, so I'm absolutely enthralled by it and it is I discovered it's my passion. But I do want to make clear, I'm not some like know-it-all. My, my opinion is just my opinion. And when I started tweeting about politics, it wasn't because I am right and you're wrong or I know more than you. It was just me sharing my mm. thinking and, and and it seems to resonate. I'm no expert. So if you follow me, I'm no expert. I'm just trying to give you what my interpretation is of things. I think that's a really refreshing uh, stance to take as well. And it's really important that people who do share their opinions about politics are open to being corrected. And it's one of the reasons that I was drawn to like Davey Moo's content and, and, and a few others is when they express their opinion about something, uh, it always comes with a sort of like a caveat or um, like an expression of like, you know, I don't know everything about this and I'm happy to be educated. I'm happy for people to correct me. You know, please do leave something in the comments if I've got something wrong. Um, and I don't want to get all tribal and divisive this early in this podcast, but I do feel like maybe <laughs> sometimes on the right, you see less of that. You see more of just the rabid grifting, you know? Yeah, there's no room for error on the right. There's no room for error, certainly in government. Um, we have a government that needs to be pressurised into U-turning. We have to; They have to be pressurised into apologising, mm. um, like the Boris Johnson Partygate thing. He has now finally apologised, but he has denied it the whole way through because any admission of, of apology or anything like that is an admission of weakness, and they don't do that. They will not let there be any any cracks for anyone to pick out. So it's just double downing. Double downing? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doubling down even but on, he, on has lies. He, has he actually, like, because I would see it as two kinds of apologies from him. Like, first, he can say, I take full responsibility, which, as I understand it, he now has said, I take full responsibility. But then there's this sort of second apology where he's kicked the can down the road so fucking much that now he has to actually get down on his knees and say, 
okay, I, not only do I take full responsibility, but also I'm sorry for fucking lying in Parliament week in, week out since December. But, like, has he done that? Has he acknowledged that he's lied in Parliament? I don't believe so. But also, so two things on that. How do you accept full responsibility after repeatedly denying any responsibility whatsoever? And also, he still believes that he did not break the law. So there's ne- it's, it's, he's still contradicting what he's been found, proven to have done. So he's not going to admit to misleading Parliament and to breaking the ministerial code. He doesn't admit anything. No, it's it's a an apology in the rhetorical sense, in, in the same way that a cheating husband might apologise to his wife to, to get her to calm down, to put down the knife, right? But Or apologise being found out. Yeah, yeah. It's, or he's... Ala Priti Patel apologising, I apologise they felt that way yeah like, not for what i've said that made you feel that way yeah. but because of your feelings that made you feel that way i'm sorry if you feel that i did the <laughs> horrible awful thing i'm sorry if anyone was <laughs> offended by the thing that i said not that i'm personally apologetic of the mm. thing and i understand how that could cause pain like they're two very different ways of communicating uh supposed remorse aren't they um let me let me just go back to your your marketing background briefly so you were working in marketing when the Brexit vote happened. Was there a sort of an overlap there to some extent where you were like, uh, hang on a second, I, I literally don't understand how so many people could have been pulled into this. And so from a marketing perspective, is that kind of what pulled you into it? You were interested in like the social media aspect? or There's certainly an overlap there. So at the time I was working for Sky and um, every piece of advertising that I would do, we would have to check double check, triple check with the legal team. Mm. We had to be so careful, scrutinise every word to make sure there was nothing misleading about this. So what I couldn't understand is when I started to actually catch a glimpse of some of the ads that were being pumped out by Vote Leave, mm. Leave.eu, you know, uh, there'd be a picture, for example, of a, a bullfighting. This was one of the ads they pumped out. Picture of yeah. bullfighting, end animal cruelty, vote Brexit or vote whatever, vote Leave. Then there'd be another one... Um, about you know waiting rooms in doctors you know empty your empty your your waiting rooms or something vote leave yeah um the polar bears are dying vote li- like literally <laughs> everything you ever Do you like teddy bears vote leave. yeah basically yeah. it was they were very clever that so i'm i'm also th- i was massively um interested in the marketing segmentation and targeting side of it because that's a big part of my um, of what I you know, my day job. They mm. were so clever in how they got people's data to understand which would be the right ad to serve to you. Are you into like, do you watch animal videos on Facebook? Do you look, uh, do you follow this sort of content on Facebook? And they would target and tailor their ads to you, depending yeah, on what yeah. your likes were, the sort of videos you were consuming. Anyway, the point being, how on earth were these people, these parties, these political figures allowed to be behind this and basically pump complete lies these aren't even misleading they are lies Mm. with absolutely no recourse and that led me to to believe uh, or to learn that actually there is absolutely nothing there is no punishment for lying in politics nothing Mm. whereas and i've used this example before are a can of cat food and the ingredients listed out on that and the advertising you might see for a tin of Sheba is is more scrutinized than our political advertising. Yeah. There was again another example I used, Danone, the people that made the yogurt. They were fined 
tens of thousands of pounds for misleading people about the number of microbiotic cultures in their yogurt. Mm. And yet we've got people that promise 350 million to the NHS per week. We promise that they wouldn't ditch the Erasmus scheme. We promise that there, that there wouldn't be loss of freedom of movement. We promise that so many things. There wouldn't be tariffs. That there wouldn't be a drop in trade. Like all of these things have just they're complete lies. Not only that, we were, we were promised the opposite. We were promised these sunlit uplands and there was just no punishment. And there still is no punishment, which we're seeing today, which is why the Prime Minister can go in Parliament and he can lie and he can lie. they can lie in the manifesto, by the way. Mm. And this goes for every party. I just don't understand. For me, if you can lie in PMQs and if you can lie in your manifestos, you render our entire democracy futile. Yeah, because nothing yeah. matters anymore. And this is this is the big problem, isn't it? That so much of politics, political culture, parliamentary debate, like the expectation that somebody would resign if they had found if they were found to be um, misleading parliament knowingly. Uh, all of this was agreed like over a sort of gentleman's handshake, as it were. Yes. Like nobody ever assumed that some sort of, you know, self-serving narcissist piece of shit would rise up and then just go, well, I'm not leaving. <laughs> no, it took, it took under two years of Boris Johnson in power to basically expose how fragile and vulnerable our political system is to being exploited and abused because of what the ministerial code of conduct, the person that upholds that mm -hmm. is the prime minister. So if you've got a rogue prime minister who breaks it constantly, which he does. Yeah. He's the person that decides the consequences and he is never, ever going to resign. Mm. I, I hope maybe you can soundbite me in a few weeks or what have you and he's resigned and I don't mind, I'll take that. But I can't see without there being some sort of forcing of his hand or vote of no confidence, which again I can't see because there are so many sycophants mm. in that party that they, they owe their livelihoods to Boris Johnson. Think of all the people, think of all the M MPs, for example, in what was a red ball that swung to, to blue because of Boris Johnson and only because of Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. And as soon as Boris Johnson is gone, because he's his personality that people think they can go and have a drink with down the pub, note, he wouldn't drink with you. He wouldn't piss on you if he, if you were on fire. <laughs> um, as soon as he's gone, they are, they are out of a job. Yeah. And nobody about him. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's it's not accidental either. Like he's constructed a conservative party uh, full of, as you say, sycophants of people who uh, who were willing to uh, sacrifice their own credibility at the mantle of Brexit. They were like, well, I'll yeah, I'll say whatever you like. I'll say Boris Johnson's amazing and I fucking love Brexit. Even even if I campaigned for Remain before, I'll say I'm fully on board with Brexit now if you just give me a nice cushy cabinet role. And so, as as you know, I'm sure, but uh, as listeners may not, um, an awful lot of the Tory moderates, like like now it's, it's so easy to just sort of caricature the Tories as though they're all evil Machiavellian cunts, basically. But <laughs> but they used to be Early moderate <laughs> conservatives, right? Like um, uh, people like uh, Dominic Grieve, um, Anna Subri, like people who sat sort of, you know, centre right and they probably supported austerity or whatever, but they got way off the bus when it started going... <laughs> going a bit crazy and they were effectively purged or forced out or pushed to resign um and so yeah now now you've got a conservative party of people who either owe their livelihoods as you've said um or i think 
one of the the kind of flavors I, I went into on a blog on, on the weekend was that the conservative party now is sort of made up of like the Whitlers who are just too fucking stupid to know <laughs> to know what's what's going on what's wrong and what like how this is going to come back to kick us all in the arse they will do anything absolutely anything to retain their positions and mm. if you look at the transformation of people who i'm not saying doris was as had much of a transformation because i think she was always a complete bell but if you look at people like liz trust for example who was once a relatively credible politician who campaigned for Remain and delivered uh, speeches and, you know, talked about the benefits of staying. She, um, I spoke to Davy Moo about this, actually. Davy Moo. Davy about this. Um, yeah. Because you can see that shift in what was a genuine person campaigning for what she believed in, where she, um, you know, came across as an actual human being that you could have a conversation with, to what she is now mm. when you see her, which is this completely, like, impenetrable stony-faced cold yeah like devoid of any emotion woman and then that then look at look at dory's as well this is what she's the same you have to almost be like completely stonewalled because when you are lying and those lies are to protect your livelihood and you can't show any chinks in the armor you become like a robot because you have to operate like that um and it's that that's what these people have become i just don't understand how do they look their mates in the face. I was like, how do they have like dinner parties? Yeah. Like, how do you not, how does someone turn, you know, go to their house and go, what the fuck are you doing, Doris? Like, what are you doing? Do you think it's a conscious thing? Do you think they're, they're like, right, I better be really stony and I better look hard. So I'm pushing back on these awkward questions. So, that, you know, like Doris is a good example when she was asked, was it by the BBC about a couple of months ago? And she was like, what, why are you asking me that? Have you communicated? I have yeah. communicated with him. But she was being so awkward. Yeah. It's like a sort of uh, like jilted girlfriend kind of vibe. It's like, have you, has he called you at all? Uh, we've uh, communicated. Yeah. <laughs> he has reached out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she was a, just a disaster to watch. Um, yeah. But, but it, it's because they, ha they have to be like that. They can't be, because we're talking now and it's fluid and it's candid and it's casual and it's natural right because we can afford to be because we haven't got an agenda where yeah. we have to protect this guy like where if we say anything out of turn or anything that could expose him or us or whatever the, the headlines are going to pick you know it's going to be the part by the media etc so all you can do is be like this and completely impenetrable and only give a single syllable word answers because you can't give anything away it's too dangerous but then if it's like if if she if it's that deliberate on her part, I'm speaking specifically about Nadine Dorries now, um, wouldn't she be a bit more careful about getting fucking shit hammered and going on camera? <laughs> wouldn't she be like, maybe I better <laughs> just calm it on the G and T's, or I might say something stupid. It makes you, I don't know. She's just like some, I would say functioning alcoholic, but she's not really functioning, is she? This is bad. I don't, because you know, I, I don't actually do feel bad here because you know me, she might have a problem. So I don't feel like we should be attacking this. But, um, even when she's not on the booze, she's just a complete liability anyway, isn't she? So, um, I mean, the fact that she's in our government, what on earth, this country, this country's got such amazing people in it, such capable people. And Nadine Dorries, I mean, have you read some of the excerpts of her novels, by the way? No, no. I, I thought they were, I thought it was satire. <laughs> the sex scenes within some of her novels are just... Erotic? Arousing? The opposite of erotic. Uh, Nicholas Witchell? <laughs> I don't know who that is, but okay. 
Um, anyway, they're just, it's just awful. She's got zero culture about her. She is a, the way she's threatened people within the media before. She's tried to sack James O'Brien before. She tried to threaten a journalist who rightfully exposed that she employed her daughters to work for her with taxpayers' money, funding their salaries, when her daughters worked miles and miles and miles away from her constituency office. Yeah. And she said something like, go anywhere near my daughters and I will nail your balls to the floor. <laughs> something very, thing, like... very much like that, maybe not verbatim. I, I, I always have to be careful how I word this because I don't want to get myself into trouble and I don't want to go the Nadine Dorries route and have five G&Ts and blurt it out clumsily. So let me just carefully consider how i'm going to say this right but i think nadine dory's pretty patel um uh cressida dick uh i i look at these women in position of power in positions of power uh and i sometimes think like are we making a, a big mistake in the sense that when like i so i worked at sky at the same time as you did by the sounds of things which mm -hmm. is kind of weird but um <laughs> Uh, but when I worked at Sky, there was a big thing about diversity and getting women into tech um, and women into leadership roles. And that's great. Then I look at politics and I look at similar sort of celebrations of women going into leadership roles and stuff. But I, th I wonder if there's a real problem of taking the values that we associate with powerful men like brash go-getters that don't take shit, that bust balls, they're, you know, oh, don't don't deal with that guy. He's a real ball buster. Like we take those same attributes and then we look for them in women and then say, oh, we're fucking amazing. We pat ourselves on the back. Look, we've put three ball busting, go getting brash women into like leadership roles. And it's like, what problem are we like? The whole thing with diversity is that you're supposed to get people from different walks of life, exactly. with different attitudes. Exactly. And then we all benefit from it. Like we don't want every fucking corporation, Metropolitan Police and Westminster to just be some big dick swinging contest, no matter like which sex or gender or, or whatever. It's the person fake is. diversity. Exactly. It's fake diversity. It's basically who can we get? Who can we get to sit on the board or who can we get to sit in government who's going to have exactly the same thinking as the current leader, but just fill the female, brown, whatever, gay box. Just there, there you go. And then that's, that's ridiculous. It ends up with groupthink, but people that just all look a little bit different. The whole point of diversity is that you're getting people in there from different cultural backgrounds, from different um I'd say class backgrounds, but you know, what I mean, sure. working class people, educational backgrounds, not people that all went to the same bloody college at Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, you're right. In fact, just sort of like spooling back a little bit further than my Sky days, right? I used to work at a big, big four consultancy, which I will not name. Uh, but they used to do a big thing about diversity as well. And they fell into exactly the same trap where they would run these diversity programs and you would absolutely deal with consultants from different countries and they would be of different races and creeds. But almost without exception, all of them would come from incredibly wealthy backgrounds. So it's like you would kind of ish solve the diversity quota problem. But you like what problem are you solving if you're just you're basically just giving in like a, a group of diverse millionaires more mm -hmm. opportunity you know yeah i know but it's the same look at but then look at pretty patel who came from you think on paper with her background you know her mum and dad were economic migrants by the way mm. we'll be really clear about this um who came over she should 
to, as mine were, by the way. Mine were fleeing persecution or war. They came over from Sicily to try and create a better life because there was just no real opportunity out there. And if you compare my life and what we've been able to achieve over here compared to my cousins in Sicily, we have a better standard of living. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the point is Pretty Patel, the same as Dominic Raab, who had similar um, heritage as well. James Cleverly, I think, came from a fairly humble background. These people should really have be bringing those experiences with them, what it means to be an immigrant growing up in UK, what it means to be um, someone who came from a working class background and bringing that to their positions in government. Mm. But they haven't. They have just assimilated. They've become mini Boris Johnsons and they will just parrot any crap that they need to to keep their positions. They're not yeah. representing anyone except, I mean, who did the Conservative Party represent now? It's like the top, top naught point not 1% of people now that yeah. it represents. It's literally the, the right. only remaining principle. It's like protecting the very rich. The windfall tax, the windfall tax is such an obvious one. Like, But then if you've got energy company uh, companies that funnel shitloads of money through to the Tory firm as donors, mm. why on earth are the Tory party ever going to be motivated to put a windfall tax on them? They yeah. know which side their bread is buttered on. And this yeah. is why, this, again, this is another thing. There's so many conflicts of interests in politics that would not be allowed in any other industry. Certainly not in my industry that I work in. I'm sure not in yours either. But in any, if even if you're a teacher, surely there are limits on, on you know, if a parent starts chucking, like, thousands of pounds your way or taking you on a lavish holiday so you're like you you show preferential treatment over their kid. That's basically what we're seeing on a grand, grand scheme every day. Yeah, with the Stephen government, and and the one layer of recourse that we have, well, two layers of recourse, right? So the first is select committees. So occasionally you'll see a Pretty Patel or a Boris Johnson hauled in front of a select committee and grilled, and it makes for really good viewing for political nerds like me because I'll just sit there with my bag of popcorn, go like, oh yeah, that's it, you you <laughs> you skewer that get, motherfucker. You get him. Oh, that's a yeah. Good one. <laughs> uh, so like seeing like Yvette Cooper in there, like. Um, skewering Patel is like, oh, it's delicious. It's, um, but it's, you know, it's relatively, it's a minor affair. Like it might make the news on Channel 4 News, but it's not, it doesn't shift the needle really. The only thing that we have as recourse actually is the election. And that sort of comes back to what you were saying earlier about like, you know, if you if you act a certain way in business or if you're a teacher, then there's always repercussions for things. In mm -hmm. politics, it's it's the most important thing in the fucking country. It's like how we run the country and laws and getting people to abide by them. And yet, when they step outside of that legal framework themselves, what do we hear? It's like, well, you know, hey. if you don't like it, vote us <laughs> out. Yeah. Imagine, imagine a CEO of a company or a teacher, whoever, who is utterly shit in their job who was like dashed, say, say it's a company. I have, I gambled with my shitty project with my uh, with my company and I've hemorrhaged 4% um, of the, pro the profits um, on a yearly basis. Oh, and I've made a massive chunk of the workforce leave as well. Mm. Um, but you know what? I'm going to stick around for the next three and a half years because that's just how we do things. <laughs> no, not not the case. It's, you know, they, they bugger off, but there is no recourse. There's none, none at all. And this is where we're in really scary, scary, scary territory. We've still got ages left. I know. Essentially. Ages. Well, I don't know. There's a rumour that they're going to do a general election next year. I don't know how confirmed or, or not it is. But, um, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they do. Um especially if we do end up ejecting Johnson from number 10.
because then there'll be all the arguments from Labour saying like you've got no mandate, you know this yeah. we, we ne nobody ever elected this prime minister, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I could see that happening, and especially if they continue. Well, I don't know. I was about to say especially if they continue to slide in the polls, and they might want to. But w I mean, will they? If they're not, they've been nine points behind for about six months now. So maybe that's why I think they'll do everything they can to avoid it. Yeah, maybe you're right. Mm. Um, I'm I excited for the May elections. I'm, I'm, I say I'm excited. I'm hopeful for the May elections. Me too. I think this could be a, a little litmus test to see if anything is actually reaching the ears of the electorate. Yeah, well, it's interesting because things have sort of flipped the other way. I, like for a long time, whatever Labour tried, whatever messaging, slogans, PR opportunities, nothing seemed to shift the needle. No matter how bad the warnings or the actual realities of Brexit became, nothing seemed to shift the needle. They were always about seven points or 11 points behind. Yeah, but do you know why, Aid? Because, sorry to say this, but Labour's marketing is shit. And again, I say this from a marketing standpoint. Some of the stuff I saw, like Keir Starmer pictured in a gilet in a field with some like vacuous slogan that could literally belong to any other party, including the Tories. It means nothing. Like they've got some really good policies. Polly Toynbee, um, she's Guardian journalist. She wrote an awesome article, like saying this is. They've got some brilliant stuff here, but it's not hitting home. And I read this article, I'm like, where do you? Find out about these policies because these are awesome really good stuff and this is why i wish people could actually like it should, it should be mandatory reading that this is a policy that you, this these are our top 15 policies these are the ones we're going to prioritize when we get into power and i wish people knew about them because some of labor's these are great and guess what they're not going to sting people on their taxes do you know who's who's getting stung on taxes all of us mm. mostly Mostly just the working class, mostly just like the young people, um, mostly those earning PAYE versus those that just got shed loads because of properties and capital um, gains and all the rest of it. Um, those are the people getting hammered right now and more so than any other time since the Second World War. So now we're paying. So don't worry. Please don't be scared that your taxes are going to fly through the roof if a Labour government comes in. Because actually, if you looked at, um, I don't know if this has changed since their last manifesto, but the higher rate of income tax, like they don't do a good job of communicating this. That was going to work out if you if you weren't over 80 grand. Mm. Um, I think it was, again, I need to double check this, but it was something very small, something like for every thousand pounds over 80K that you earn, you'd pay an extra 50 pounds of tax with yeah. Labour's high income tax. Now, who's, who's, who's against that? If you're earning plus 80K, like 50 quid in a thousand, you're not going to miss. And also, I don't mind paying higher tax if I can see public services getting better, yeah. we pay higher taxes and they're getting fucking worse. Yeah. Worse. I'm dying in ambulances. I remember. I remember um, it wasn't the 2019 election. It was the one before. When was that? 2015? It was quite short before um, it, wasn't it? I can't remember. But anyway, it was. I think it was a Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn one. And uh, a friend of mine voted Tory. And I was like, oh, like, you know, we had the usual like back and forth on WhatsApp. Like, what the fuck? Like, really? And um, and we were talking about public services and funding. And uh, and a few of us who were on the left were saying, like, I I honestly wouldn't mind paying another 50 quid a month or 75 quid a month if I could see it going towards it. Like, the, yeah. the problem Something is properly, yeah. it never fucking goes like when it's a Tory government, it never goes to the public services. It goes to some sort of 
outsourced circo donor kind of outfit and then that company then start cutting away at the actual service that they're supposed to be funding they yeah. make a killing give it to shareholders the whole thing starts to you know whittle away even more um i was like even like as as we were edging closer to to this uh 2023 general election that they're talking about i was like you know if i was labor i might be tempted to say one-time tax if you earn over 80k 100 quid that's it like mm -hmm. and then you just know that it's done like i think that would be you yeah, know almost like a telethon you know? give some clarity to people so they are not scared of the this unknown tell people what this progressive sliding scale of taxes so they know actually it's not really going to be something they notice too much um but they don't and also the thing <laughs> the thing as well is people love to in fact jerry vine called this out on the show on friday um you know, he said uh, when Labour left power, they left us in a really bad state. The economy was basically on its knees. And I, I don't doubt that there was some overspending on Labour's part. There was also a global financial crash at the same time, which yeah. seems to be forgotten sometimes in that uh, tale of events. But say, for example, that is the case. Let's just play along and say, OK, Labour overspent and left us in a bit of a bad place. They overspent on health and social care and public services and sure start centers and education, all the rest of it, right? Mm. Whereas we're, look at us now, look at the state we're in now, look at the state of our economy, look at what we've hemorrhaged because of Brexit, look at what we'll continue to hemorrhage because of GDP and dropping exports, except in the cost of Brexit going forward. Uh, and things like Rishi Sunak's losing of billions to fraud and then the billions spent on failed trace, the billions funneled through to credit only cost of fail, you know, unusable PPE. Now we're in a really bad state, and none of that money went into the public services. So I'd rather have a Labour Party that overspends on the good stuff rather than a Tory party that overspends on enriching themselves and their and their mates, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of leads me on to a, an important point, I think, ahead of any kind of general election campaigning and uh uh, people alluding to it and like what the campaigns might involve and um i think it's it's an important thing like somebody only really drew my attention to it about six months ago which is super late right i'm 41 i should have figured this out by now but um it is that when people get into politics on the left it seems to be and maybe i'm biased but it seems to be that they come from a certain background where they don't want someone else to have to go through that or they've mm. seen something happen to somebody and they think I'm going to speak up for that person or they or they just generally if it's not if that's not them they just generally see problems in public life in society where they think that could be done better I reckon I could step up and maybe make a difference like it seems like on the left they're broadly coming from a good place I'm sure there's a few bad apples a few shitheads I'm positive of that but broadly yeah, speaking like the further left you go sometimes the radical left it's like the horseshoe theory, isn't it? Yeah. It comes around and the, the radical left end up being very close to the radical right with their ideology and it's just not something you should be pursuing. It doesn't benefit, you know, That's it. the wider population. But you're right, I think for me, like... But then on, on the right, they have to, basically, they have to lie about it. Like, on the right, they're not really interested. Like, it's the whole thing with conservatism with a small c is kind of self-governance, self-responsibility. I'm going to make things better for my family and better myself. I want more of my money to not be taxed so I can put that towards healthcare. It's like the self-self-self thing, right? So because they don't really give a fuck about you and your family and your kids' school... They kind of have to lie about it. They have to say, vote Tory and we will put some money into 
state schools in this area and then as soon as you put your vote in the box they're like <laughs> we're not fucking doing that what are you <laughs> not. no we're not have you seen there's a wonderful chart that was brought up on oh, i want to say it was like uh, oh, it was the sky news or something which showed the amount of investment that goes into public uh, comprehensive state schools yep. versus private schools when the tories are in power there is a gaping gap basically yeah. it falls off a cliff for comprehensive schools and it it completely like is on an upward trajectory for the private schools. Yeah. Um, but just, I think for, for me as well, like there were so many things. I, I working class background. My mum, my mum was a cleaner and a dinner lady. My dad worked, you know, as a waiter at the Ritz and stuff like that. And he was a gardener. He was a hospital night porter. Any took any job they could do. Mm. Um, you know, didn't speak the language. They couldn't write. They couldn't write in English. Um, and I think there are so. I'm fortunate. I've ended up where I have because of social mobility and serendipity and luck and hard work as well. But lots of things. And I just think, for example, the changes that have been introduced by stealth to things like um, uh, the student loans. I don't know if you mm. saw that. It was a story that came out last week. Is it they're doubling or is it tripling? It, the intro, It's insane. It is basically going to make these costs. The interest rates. We're going to add thousands, thousands of the cost of it. It also penalizes students who can't pay back quicker yeah. because obviously there's more interest that's applied to their borrowing. But if that were the case today, I, I went to university when it was £3,000 per year. Same. Uh, tuition yeah. fees. They're now £9,000 per year, plus these interest rates that have just soared. Plus, if you look at the voting record of this, co- this government, they want to remove the cap of £9,000 per year to make it more expensive mm-hmm. so basically we're drifting towards the american model all that's going to mean and by the way erasmus as well so my brother and my sister i did do it they did a year abroad in italy to study there because they studied italian as well that would have not been available to our to our family i wouldn't have been able to go to university if i wasn't able to go to university i would have never been able to carve out this life for myself mm. and that's what's happening there's gonna, that, that's what the tories are doing they're just depriving people of these advantages um, if you think about the cost of living crisis, I think about this a lot. I was thinking about this in the, in the shower yesterday, actually. You know, we've got, I've got a 16-month-old boy. He does little kickers football. He does swimming. He does sing and sign. Mm. And all of this shit, like me and my husband, like, oh, my God, this costs a lot of money. We need to we need to reevaluate our spending because everything's going up. These are experiences that our little boy has that other kids are just never going to have because they cost too much. They're never going to be able to do these things. And what's the easiest thing you can do if you don't have time or money? Shove them in front of a telly. Yeah. Like, like, easily done, by the way. Very easily done. But all this does, so basically from childhood, from baby through to student, we're just depriving people, the next generation of these opportunities, and we're creating this massive gap between the poor and the rich. And it just it's just going to become, that social mobility is going to come become harder and harder. Because for me, if I was if I was back to being a kid now, I would I would never have been able to get to where I am today. Yeah. Under this government. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we. It, it sounds like we sort of came up around the same kind of time. And although I I didn't study, or like I do tech now, uh, programming, um, but I it like it put me on on the way. If that's not too sort of vague, like I I studied, uh, music industry management, and then I went and worked in a call center for a bit. But I, it sort of. I guess I'm I was one of those people who like it just kind of changed my mindset about what mm. my life could be like I knew I wasn't going to work in a, like you know push around trolleys or I knew I wasn't going to just sit in a call center my my whole life uh and so I did that for a little bit and then I moved up to London and then I did some recruitment and 
like more sort of serendipitous on my side like through the people that i met and the conversations that i was then privy to but um but it's 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 a fantastic uh like game changer in terms of the experiences that it exposes you to and like the idea that we would deprive people of that and and the the like the desire to better themselves and to explore new subjects and it just seems firstly really fucking mean-spirited and classist but secondly in, entirely self-defeating because you're what you're doing is you're turning off the tap of the potential of the next generation of of the country and like we're already in a fucking labor shortage there's already like a generation of like 18 to 26 year olds who are like I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to do. I guess I'll go and like do Deliveroo for a bit, you know? Yeah. I know, um, it's, it's really hard. But also, the, this government, you know, a, a secure government, it's a bit like a secure boss, right? If someone's like, a, if you've got a CEO that's really secure in their role, mm. they know they're really confident of their abilities, they don't mind having a team of people that they work with really closely, even a vice president who are just as shit hot as them because they want to make the company as good as they can. They want, you know, that everyone's expert knowledge. But if you are insecure and you know and you doubt your own capabilities and you know you're probably a complete imposter mm -hmm. like Boris Johnson, you need to make sure you're surrounded by complete incompetent twats because they will ensure they keep you in power. And you might look remotely okay. But also for Boris Johnson, like, what it, what it, if, you're, if I'm a prime minister of a country... I want my country to be completely united or as united as a country can be, right? I want them to be, because it makes the country stronger. It makes sure. it a more a nice place to live. It makes people more compassionate towards each other, et cetera, et cetera. Look at Boris Johnson. He goes out of his way to stoke division and do exactly the opposite. Why would a prime minister want... Did you see the front cover of the, of the Daily Mail over the weekend? It was, we won't let the left thwart our Rwanda plans. Yeah. How on earth, like, what sort of leader of anything, of any company, of a family, whatever, what sort of leader would aim to set one again as an enemy against the other? You don't. The reason he does that is because as he, if he can perpetuate these sorts of warring, the sort of warring between us down here, we're not looking at him, we're not focusing on him. Whereas if we're down here and we're united and we're going, Jesus, I know you voted Brexit and I and I voted to remain, but. What the hell is this guy doing up here? And we start to unite. That's when we become a problem. But unfortunately, we're down here worrying about statues and well, you know, we? things. I mean, it feels like at the moment, like we, we've had a lot of culture war and division, and you know, Remainers versus Brexiteers, and uh, poppies and statues, and you know, you you fucking go back through the news any month over the last like four years and there'll be something in there the proms fucking winston churchill <laughs> statues and um but it feels like with the rwanda uh idea um that it's not really gaining traction it's not distracting from partygate in the way that they would have absolutely loved it to uh I mean, bear in mind that so last week was the week that Boris Johnson gets his fine. Effectively, the Met saying you did break the fucking law, which um, kind of uh, ergo means that you you were lying in Parliament this entire time. Uh, difficult week for him and his leadership. And that's the same week that they go, hey, we're going to ship asylum seekers off to Rwanda. But it doesn't. My sense is that it hasn't landed in the way that they needed it to. So is it like the public are kind of smartening up to this? They're like, uh-uh, like, not, not going to fall for this. 
I, I hope so, but I think it very much depends who you talk to. So if, if you look at the reactions, so I um again this was talked about on Jeremy Vine and Jeremy Vine put the, they put these clips out on Twitter, they put them out on on Facebook. The responses on Twitter are so much more positive in terms of people agreeing that it's an awful, awful idea for so many reasons. The response on Facebook, which pulls in a different demographic, is is very, very different. Really? A lot of people, yeah. Um, and I could only really read uh, like for about three minutes of them because there were hundreds of comments. Um, and, you know, Facebook, there's a lot of, well, we're full. Well, what's her solution? Well, they need to do something. Or this is great. Or basically lots of positivity towards it. So, you know what, in certain echo chambers, maybe people are growing you know, tired of this type of, you know, chucking out red meat for us to argue about. But I think a lot of people fall for it i think a lot of people also support the red meat agenda that that's put out there but then i i see what you're saying about like echo chambers but then the polling like the polling is still strong for labor against the tories and it just makes mm -hmm. me think you know if you were boris johnson if you were his chief of strategy and you looked at the polls for the last six months and Partygate and second jobs patterson like all of these clouds gathering and the May elections coming up, wouldn't you kind of sit him down and go like, look, this is obviously what we're doing here is not working. We need you to start looking fucking competent, statesmanlike, stop the lying. Like, you know, you would. You he, can't, would... he can't. He had a he had, I think, a glimmer of it or not from that's not my interpretation. But I think there was a glimmer of it that people saw with his, um, you know, the support that was given to Ukraine and Zelensky. And and don't get me wrong. I, this is the thing I can say when the government's good, done good things. I, I don't say often because they don't. Mm. But I, I think it's great in terms of the response for military aid and that we we were one of the first in the pact to start doing that. And obviously Zelensky's got a lot of time for Boris Johnson as a result of that. That's a, that's a good thing. And I think that that probably boosted him a little bit. But the fact is it's going to be a short-term boost when you consider all of the other shit that keeps flooding out of, of number 10. And also, what are they going to do? Because there are going to be more fines coming. So mm. this is happening in a sort of sequential order. These these fines are coming from the Met Police. There are due to be more. So what's he going to do? Start you know, a campaign to send benefit claimants to the South Antarctic or something? Well, he, he can't just keep coming up with shitty, awful red red meat policies to keep distracting from us. So I think there's there's an expiry date on this. He'll probably say that the Met Police are woke. <laughs> Wowzers. Possibly, possibly. I mean, they've said that you know lawyers are lefties now, lefty lawyers. So, yeah. um, lefty. I mean, they've had a go at the Pope, didn't they? Pretty Patel yeah. had a go at Pope. And the, so uh, I think the is off limits. Archbishop of Canterbury over the weekend. Sorry, <laughs> not the Pope. That's who I meant. Pope. Yeah. <laughs> the Pope sadly hasn't spoken out about um, Rwanda, but he should do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not that I care, by the way, and not that I think there is any place for like this sort of thing in politics, but it, there is, right? These people are involved. In fact, there is, I had, had no idea, but the archbishop's actually appointed, right? Like by, is a, is a government appointment or something to do with the government? So he's very much embedded. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I read a, a little bit yesterday where people were saying, oh, we've, I think it's Ben Bradley, who is one of these uh, oh, ex-Red Wall, kind of now Blue Wall conservative MPs who frequently puts his foot in, in his mouth. Uh, and he was saying, we separated church and state a long time ago. And uh, yes, we I didn't. saw Otto English quote tweeting it or screen mm. grabbing it saying like, 
Ben Bradley doesn't understand the fundamentals of the British Parliament. Ben Bradley doesn't understand much. He's such a colossal twat. Like yeah. the things he come, comes up with, he's again, it just shows you the type of people that are in these positions. Well, Who's voting for them? Well, I, Who's I, in power? I assume that they were barrel scraping around the North, the Northeast, the Midlands to find people who would be willing to take six weeks off work from their actual job to be like the Tory MP in a seat that was likely to lose. And so there was only a few people who would like most most regular grown-ups would be like hang on a second that's a shit deal you know like yeah, why I would have I dignity. I have self-respect <laughs> yeah like you're going to make me look a massive twat to everyone that I live around and work with and I'm probably not going to win so like it was you know slim pickings I imagine so it's low caliber low rent high risk candidates and unfortunately for Great Britain he happened to get in <laughs> But oh god! I just hope, from, he's, I hope he's one of the first to go. Well, from what I've read, a lot of that old Red Wall area is like they've had enough already. Good. Um, so you know, it's sometimes it's hard to be a hundred percent compassionate because there were people like you and me and everyone else on Twitter at the time saying, "Don't vote Tory, don't vote Tory. This is a fucking mistake." Uh, and then these idiots get in, and mm. you kind of want to, you know heap on some schadenfreude and be like well you know you vote tory you get tory um, mm -hmm. but you've got to be a bit you know understanding and uh to, to take us back to what you were talking about earlier about marketing and micro targeting and all that mm -hmm. stuff that... But people believe that so, so back in, especially i don't like paint the older generation but some of the older generation they expect and and rightly as it should be they expect their politicians to tell them the truth and yeah. they expect their newspapers to tell them the truth and and so they they haven't um, they're perhaps not as cynical as we are they're perhaps not as you know scrutinizing as we are so when someone promises them something they just believe it whereas you can't we unfortunately we live in a post truth era where you just can't do that i spoke with um Dawn Nisa, who is was is a sun journalist and she was i was on with her and jeremy vine on um on friday and, and off air i said to her just in between the, like in the ad breaks she'd say to her because it got very heated mm. said, dawn do you not realize that do you not think it's bad that you're in your role you you misinform people that's your job you, like, you tell people what they think is the news and it's fiction and she said in in newspaper what we put on the front page is what will sell the paper yeah and i thought it was a really frank and honest response but it shows you that they will put anything on there that sparks enough outrage or sparks enough interest to get you to buy the paper with absolutely little consideration on whether it's true or not. They just want you to buy it. And that's the disconnect there, isn't it, between, as you say, like some of the older generation is that they, they grew up and worked in a time when you could kind of believe-ish like what was on the front of the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph. Like traditionally, these are broadsheet, credible mm. newspapers of record where you know back in the day they would scoop labor or they'd scoop the tories whatever was the big story and to be mm -hmm. fair actually to the, to the telegraph and the times they have kind of tapped into party gate here and there uh but mostly by and large but to a colossal degree they are right-wing sensationalist papers now and yeah. you absolutely can't take everything that they say with anything less than a pinch of salt no, and the thing is, that many of us appreciate and understand them to be that, but so many people don't. They trust them as a legitimate news source. Mm. And it's now so sad. It's so sad to see that that's the BBC as well. Like, did you see the BBC's coverage of the um, funds that are being awarded? So basically lots of 
uh, Cornwall's being awarded something like 132 million, mm. 132 million from the government as part of their levelling up fund. That was the BBC headline. Government awards 132 million. I don't, might have got the figure wrong. They omitted the bit that was covered in lots of like local newspapers, which is the fact that this is a 30, I think it was 37 percent drop yeah. on what the EU provided them. In fact, the EU provided the 37 percent more every year. Mm. That 132, whatever it was, was just for one year, and that's not just Cornwall. That's in Teesside. That's all of Wales. There's a so basically that's another manifesto pro, uh, pledge that was broken. The Tories promised to match the EU funding that was lost when we left the EU. They haven't. They've levelled down to the tune sometimes of 40%. And mm. that's going to be really felt in these areas. And these are areas that voted for Brexit. Yeah. Like, yeah. look at the BBC cover of it. So misleading. You don't get down to the comparison of what we had before and what we've got now until, like, I don't know, three or four paragraphs in. And a lot of people, as we know, they just read the headline. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a huge number as well. Like, let's say it is 137 billion or something. Uh, if you're just an everyday person and you don't obsess over politics or finance or government funding or whatever, you read a headline like that, government awards Cornwall 137 billion, you'd be... Million, million, million. Oh, million, is it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's... Fucking hell. Yeah, that's... I mean, in government terms and public funding, it's kind of peanuts. It's like... Mm -hmm. Exactly. So... But even so, like 137 million to like an everyday Joe on the street, it's still kind of a big. He would be thinking, or she would be thinking, that's a lot of money. I wouldn't yeah. mind 137 billion. So this is million. what the opposition needs to do, and I can do this with my my tweets. I try and make everything feel relevant because that was why before I was into politics, it just felt irrelevant. It felt like it didn't impact me. So what I try and do is make it feel relevant to people. And I think if people could start to see things, walk through their town, see the closed down library, see what used to be, I don't know, a Shaw Start Centre, see the, the dilapidated um, uh, high street because we are favouring these internet giants who don't even have to pay taxes, uh, you know, versus the, the average Joe who's trying to sell stuff or this company here is shut down because their whole EU market's now fucking off limits. Like connect the dots, put something in the waiting rooms at the NHS, which says you're waiting here to 12 hours plus now because of a Tory government. They need to be as clever with the marketing now as Vote Leave was and Leave.eu because that is what that is what makes people vote. People like, we're talking about macro stuff here. Like we talk about GDP dropping and export, you know, hemorrhaging 40, 40 billion per year in exports. Mm. That doesn't, people don't give a fuck about that. Make it relevant to them. Make it relevant to their to their kids' schooling. Make it relevant to their um, the waiting the waiting list of, of because of their hip operation, whatever. This is what we need to do. Make it relevant. Don't just put out some vacuous statement and Keir Starmer in a bloody gilet because that's not going to cut it. No, no, that's a, it's a really important point. It's, it's something that I think we touched on earlier that Labour traditionally have kind of just lacked lacked the oomph on. You know, with Tory marketing, you think instinctively of micro-targeting, Brexit adverts, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, three-word slogans. Um, with Labour, I struggle to think of, like, a real, you know, oh, yeah, that's Labour. That's what Labour do, you know? All I can remember from the Corbyn era is, like, free broadband. But mm. also, I'm not going to put this jewel at the foot of Labour and their marketing machine. It is the fact that, the, the the mainstream media, the big newspapers, 
the ones that have, are the foghorns in this landscape, they are the ones that support the Tories. And so wherever you turn, you're going to hear the Tory slogans and the Tory policies, which all sound really great and uplifted and simple to remember. And you're not going to hear the stuff of, of the Labour Party, like the windfall tax, like the fact that they that they want to insulate 19 million homes to make sure they can drop the energy bills. The fact that they want to extend the warm homes discount. They want to set up mental health centres in every town. Like there's so there's so many things that they, they are planning to do. And it's, honestly, that, that Polly Toynbee article was brilliant. But they just need to find a way to land these policies with people because they're great policies. Mm really good policy but people just don't hear about it and end up voting for the the you know the, the color of the scarf that's been around their neck and i find that nuts as well like you don't have to your allegiance to a party should be as fluid as that party's leaders mm. uh, the, the mps and its policies why shouldn't you go from tory to lib dem to whoever like i wish there were a way of voting blindly so you got a list of policies through, you ticked the ones you liked, and then you found out, oh, that looks like I'd actually vote Lib Dem, or oh, I'd actually vote Green. But people don't do that, and so they go, I'm going to vote Tory, because that's what my husband does, or that's what my parents did, or that's what I've always done. And it's bollocks. Yeah. Don't keep doing always done. Check out what they're offering, and then go from there. I wonder sometimes if there's, like, I'll get into some real like armchair psychology now, but I wonder if there's something socioeconomic about it in the sense that when you go to towns that have a lot of deprivation, uh, you might find a, like a lot of football flags like hanging out the windows. Mm -hmm. They like they it's like sort of group identity kind of thing. It's like an it, it, you see a similar thing with like churches. If you go into some parts of London, really really deprived, you see a lot of churches. And it's that sort of strength in numbers, tribal kind of thing. And I wonder if, like, over the last 25 years, as things like the housing crisis have fermented and uh, crescendoed, uh, that as people's lives have got harder and they've got less and less disposable income and they're having to move further and further away from their families, their support networks are slowly crumbling they haven't got the security of a house, like a home over their head. Job security is slowly whittling away as well. They haven't got the structures of like the NHS and education is crumbling as well. But the one thing they can cling on to that gives them some sense of like security and group identity is maybe a fucking political party that's telling them, hey, yeah, yeah we're all in this together. You're like us. Put a blue scarf nationalism. on. You know? It's exactly what happens in nationalism. I'm reading um, at the moment The Tyranny of Merit which covers exactly this. And the fact that when you, you when the, there is this huge gaping divide in society between the rich and the poor, and you know, you've got this view that the people in government are just there because they're, they're super smart experts and whatever. But what ends up happening is these people, they've got they've got nothing. They've got nothing to identify with. They've got they don't become part of the um of the political discourse anymore. So what they what ends up happening is, is it becomes easier to be nationalist and it becomes easier to blame your problems on the things you can see at a ground level, which might be her down the road with her four kids and a flat screen TV mm. or or that person there that's cut who speaks a funny language and is a different colour to me, who's, you know, on the on the street corners or what have you. It becomes very easy to just to look at them and see your problems as being as being at that level. Um so I think, uh, yeah, and that's why they—that's why they paint immigrants as being this, this you know, big concern of ours, um, when it's not that. It's just not that case at all. Uh, in fact, this is just one poor point on that as well. So Germany, um, Germany have a, a much more generous welfare system, 
And one of the reasons they said that is because they never, they know that conditions for things like poverty, um, people not having enough, people feeling really like um, forgotten, like abandoned by their governments, becomes a breeding ground for fascism. And they never want to go back there, which is why Germany have, yes, higher taxes, um, although I don't think they are. I think we're one of the highest taxing uh, uh, countries in Europe at the moment. Need to correct that. I'm happy to be fact-checked on that. Sure. Um, but they do that to avoid having that basically what is a perfect, the perfect conditions for people to slide into fascism. Because when you are, and this is what we're going to see with the cost of living crisis, when you've got fuck all in your back pocket, when you've got nothing left and you're working especially, um, and you see your life getting worse and worse and you become angrier and angrier at it, it becomes really easy to point the finger at the people just a little bit further up from you who maybe have a little bit more than you rather than going, hang on, let's look way up here at these people who are absolutely creaming it, creaming it off us, whereas we down here get nothing. Like, yeah. Down economics doesn't really trickle. We, we should never discount the uh, favorability of like the simple story like people will run towards a simple story of like good and evil which is good and bad over mm. having to sit down for seven minutes and read and consume and digest the actual complexities and nuances of the situation and why their life has got worse and worse and who is creaming it off the top it's mm. so much easier to lure people down this road over here and say oh yeah you, like your council tax went up because this brown dude down the road has got a free flat you know like they fucking run for that shit it's a nothing really... to do with the billions that we use through things like tax avoidance and tax evasion and these yeah. huge loopholes that our government is very happy to leave open because it facilitates the mega it helps the mega wealthy mm. they will always help the mega wealthy because that's who lines the coffers of their party. That's who keeps them in power. The newspapers, most of the newspapers, the BBC, for example, is a great example, who are completely hamstrung now, right? Mm. If they don't tow the party line, they are going to lose their funding base. The government will decriminalise not paying your licence fee. So they have got to tread so carefully, which is why we're seeing the BBC now just pumping out Tory propaganda, Mm. because they have to. And then if you look at our media, if you look at some of the right-wing press for example they are owned by billionaire barons who live offshore Mm. who benefit from these huge tax avoidance schemes or what have you that are that are perfectly legal and they're perfectly legal because the the government ensure they are kept perfectly legal these are the people these barons own these papers who tell us that the Tory party are great and Labour's awful and Brexit is great and more because they need the Tory party to stay in power, to preserve, to protect and to grow their wealth. Yeah. And then this is the thing, right? It's so big. This shit is so huge. Like think how it takes so much time to get your head around all of this. Like it's massive. Like it's, it's, it's a whole season of football. It's a yeah. whole five seasons of keeping up with the Kardashians to try and get your head around this stuff, which is why people just don't. It's too, yeah. you know, and sometimes I have it after a whole day of just reading and despairing about what is going on in this country. You know, I sometimes I need to just work on Married at First Sight Australia and just have <laughs> a really chilled evening where I'm not thinking about stuff. Yeah. Because it's too big. And a lot of people like, you know, and I talk about my own sister here, for example, they can't, they've just not got the capacity to pick it up. Yeah. Which is what I, I think. What I try to do with my Twitter and what I try, what I think we need to see more of, and for example, the more left-leaning press, to make this stuff 
more entertaining for people, make it more relevant, make it simpler. Why does it have to be a Guardian or Observer article that is like 700 pages long, uh, seven, not 700, you know, really lengthy? Yeah. It takes ages to get to the crux of the issue, you know, references a bit of Latin in there. Also. Just keep it really simple and let people know the lay of the land and what's going on in the same way that the tabloids do. Try yeah, and hammer yeah. it home in a way that is not isolating. I think they're getting better at it. Like the, to the the infographic thing that you referred to earlier, the Sky News one, where they were talking about the difference in funding for private yeah. schools versus state schools, was a, a really powerful one. I f- I don't know which paper generated that, or indeed if it was Sky News, but that was a really good one. Uh, things like that make it so obvious how far the rot has set in um the other one that springs to mind was the pie chart i saw floating around this was about four or five years ago saying this is how much benefit fraud costs us and it was something like seven billion and this is how much tax evasion costs us and it was like 700 billion (laughs) i know like why would that is like Again, that's another one of Labour's policies. Mm. Labour want to radicalise the tax system, so they want to close some of these loopholes, which would save us money, like bring shitloads of money into the Treasury and Mm. give us more money to spend in public services. That that can only be a good thing. This is what gets me. It's like, so I'll I'll do TikToks or I'll put tweets out about uh, how we need to close loopholes or we should focus on tax evasion, tax avoidance. And um, uh, Rishi Sunak was in the news couple of weeks ago for uh, non-dom status so whenever i talk about tax evasion uh, and tax avoidance and people always come in with this this comment or this tweet or this clap back where they go well come on now you know if you if you were a billionaire you'd be doing it so you're a massive fucking hypocrite and i'm like well hang on a second like it's not it's not up to whether i would do it i'm not trying to say a hundred percent wouldn't i don't know if i would because you know I don't, I've worked very hard to not be a billionaire, Marina. But um, <laughs> if I were in that position, I honestly, I don't know if I would be tempted to to dodge or duck or try to mitigate. That's what they refer to it as, mitigate your tax obligations. But hang on, but if it's but legal, it's, you you probably would. It's it's legal. I might get oh, talked into doing it, yeah. Like, but you make it the whole... That's the point. It's not for us to decide. Like, It should be for the government to decide that it, it's not right. Well, this it's is illegal. it. Illegal. Why should why should people earning shitloads of money pay a lesser rate of tax than people you know near the bottom of the food chain? Yeah, that's they exactly shouldn't. it. It's like you have two paradigms, if you like. You've got the paye, like working people, you, me, your sister, your mum, your dad, your hairdresser, who are just locked into this fucking shit, and we're on a tax code, and we have no oh, way sure. of manoeuvring it. Yeah. But and then you've got the other world of the wealthy and super wealthy, where they're like, well. Yeah, don't know. Might pay tax, maybe. Maybe I'm not. Yeah, exactly. And they've got the money, so you basically need to be wealthy enough to hire these really clever accountants yeah. to say, well, this is where we can move your money, and we can do blind trusts, which is what Rishi Sunak's got. Or we can do tax havens, and mm. we can do non-dom status, which again, you're only in the know of if you are mega wealthy and can afford access to this. Yeah. So why why is it? Why is it? Who are the people that need to cling on to their earnings more? Is it the mega, mega wealthy? Or is it the ones that are working now and still a massive chunk of them are having to claim universal credit because yeah. they can't make ends meet? It's fucking nuts, isn't it? It's like, I mean, it's it's also, there's, there's a part of me that's like, 
to, to quote Ides of March, if you like, like where we should adopt this attitude of like, it's not what you personally would do, Marina. It's like what society, like society has to be better than the individual, I think is the exact mm-hmm. quote from it, um, where society has to c- construct a framework that everybody lives by in exactly the same way as we've all kind of unanimously ish sort of agreed that we don't want to have a country where we hang people. Right. So society. But if somebody murdered a relative of mine, I might feel bloodlust. I might want to kill them. But Mm -hmm. society has already dictated that that's not acceptable. And it should be the same with tax. It should be like we have decided as a country that we don't want to have an unfair system that allows billionaires a way of shirking and maneuvering around their tax obligations. We want it to be fair and everyone signs up to it, even though you personally may be tempted. Oh, yes. but This is the problem. They don't want it to be um, the set one rule for everyone. They want two tier, and that's what we're seeing with the with the party gate. It is one rule for them and one rule for another, and it comes back to to taxing. Sorry, paying taxes. It's one rule for the wealthy, and it's one rule for everyone else. Like it doesn't. They don't want it to be egalitarian. They want it to be. You know what did I was again? I was on James Brown. I was on Jeremy Vine with James Max, and he said, you know. Uh, some people are more equal than others. That's bollocks. Why? Mm. What makes you better than anyone? Well, you, it does, it's not. Like, isn't there's a fair chunk of them that believe in like eugenics and shit? <laughs> like, I know, like, I know. like, I'm I'm just born better than you. It's like, well, if you're if you're so fucking better than everyone, why do you need these constructs that allow you to, you know? I know James Bryan talks about this a lot. He says there are people that were born on third base and think they've scored a home run. And that's the thing I don't get. Like, how can you not be aware of your starting point in life and how that has helped you massively get to where you are? Um, Because some people don't have any of that stuff and they still get to where they still get there, but they get there on like, well, shitloads of hard work and, and all the rest of it. Whereas you got there because of, you know, your, your dad wasn't a life peer before he died or whatever, or he was a baron or he was chummy with what's his name at the golf club. Like, yeah. just appreciate that. I, I'm not saying like you have to be like, I don't deserve my role here, but just appreciate and understand the leg ups that you had to get there versus most people that don't have those leg ups in life. And also those people down here, any leg ups that did exist, t- trying to take them away. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's I mean, to go back to earlier when you were talking about Pretty Patel and James Cleverly and Dominic Raab and these people who came from non-traditional conservative backgrounds. But I think, again, going to the, the simple story aspect of it is it's actually a simple, more flattering, ego stroking story for these people to tell themselves that, oh, I worked really hard and I made it so everyone else could do it if they wanted to. But it's, it's mm-hmm. like, no, life is not that fucking simple. Like you you got to this cabinet role because you worked hard here. Then you did that. Then you, you were introduced to this guy who introduced, you know, it's exactly it's and if never there was a bit involved here as well. And whatever. yeah, exactly. But they don't. They just attribute it to hard work. Some people will work just as hard, but they will have, I don't know, a death in the family or they'll have like all sorts of other shit. They might have mental health issues and they might not have any money in their back pocket. There's all sorts of things that they have to deal with to just try and get anywhere near the, the positions you're in. Like I always I always found it like I remember being at Sky and I I, I found I first time I realized that I'd, I'd done okay I'd done okay because there was a person in my team same level as me same sort of age and you know she'd been to Oxford and she uh her mum and dad uh, were 
they worked at MI5, very senior. Um, she was very, you know, rah, and she lived somewhere like Kizik or something like that. And we were in the same role. And I thought, you know, I must have done all right here because my mum and dad <laughs> didn't speak the language. Didn't like, I went to I went to Portsmouth University mm. after I went to UCL, by the way, which is first and foremost. And I actually quit UCL, even though my grades were like fine. And I probably could have got into Oxford or Cambridge, but I didn't know about it. No one told me that this was <laughs> I just didn't have any, any mentoring. So I was like, I don't know, I'll just go wherever. Yeah. Went, got into UCL and I was like a fish out of water. I was just like this commoner, like um, and I felt completely like, out of my depth and I ended up leaving. And I went to Portsmouth University, which was probably better suited to my class system yeah. and like uh, class background and ended up doing well. But it was only once I got to Sky, I realised the obstacles I'd had to jump over versus other people that had got there. And by the way, I had a decent background. My mum and dad were like, loving parents, but they just, no real support, education or whatever. But that's me. Like there are people in way harder, you know, way tougher beginnings than me. Yeah. And without the support of like good government policies and funding and educational funding, they're never going to get off the starting grid. No, no, that's it. I mean, if you take your exact background, you remove one of your parents, maybe one of them passes away. Maybe the remaining one gets into financial difficulty, has to move further away from the school. And suddenly you're like, let's, you know, you, let's say you're like 11 years old 12 years old and now you're knackered because you have to get up like an hour earlier to get exactly. to school and you're you know an hour later home it's just all of these things add up and mm. contribute to your the, the likelihood that you're going to make a success in those those crucial like pivotal early years mm-hmm. um marina we've we've run over a little bit over time um it's been really yeah, nice i can tell because my tummy is rumbling <laughs> <laughs> i have not had any lunch I did not. Uh, I did not pick up any tummy rumbling, but um, I'm sorry oh, for keeping you over. Um, if you guys listening and watching are not following Marina Perkis, then obviously do go and give her a follow on Twitter. Um, I'll be back uh, later on this week. I don't know what day yet to do the solo show, uh, solo edition, possibly discussing the uh, the output of Partygate and uh, this afternoon's House of Commons appearance by Boris Johnson. Um, and then I'll be back on Friday night with a super special guest. Um, so once again, if it's your first time tuning in to the podcast um please do uh, if you're in a position to go and support it on patreon.com slash aid thompson um i do one solo show a week and one show with a guest and uh, i'll catch up with you all soon thank you so much again marina perkis Woo! Thank you.